Hello, and thank you for joining us today. Welcome to this virtual Institute for Government event, which is being held to mark the launch of our new report on civil service skills. And to discuss this important subject, we're delighted to be joined by Government Chief People Officer Rupert McNeil, Emily Miles, who's the CEO of the Food Standards Agency, and Max Say, Executive Director at the National Audit Office. And we're very grateful to Oracle for sponsoring this work. And we're going to be joined today by Anton Whitefoot, the Human Capital Management Senior Director for, for the Public Sector at Oracle, uh, who will shortly say a few words. Before he says he, he, he does that, um, it's worth us saying, I think, that the IFG's had a, a really long-standing uh, interest in this subject of specialist skills in the civil service. Um, a few years ago, when the functions were uh, introduced, uh, the functions ranging from project delivery to commercial and so on, we were very enthusiastic about that uh, in a very IFG way. Um, and we have uh, been tracking the development of the functions ever since. Um, we do that annually in our Whitehall Monitor report, which looks at the size, shape and performance of the civil service, but also with one-off reports like the one that we've published today. And the one that we published today follows on from uh, work we did in 2017 uh, on professionalising Whitehall, and that took stock at, the, at that point, and, and this is a, this is a follow-up report. So just before we get into the discussion, uh, which I'm really looking forward to, um, to explain a little bit about how the event's going to run and a few logistics before we start. So after Anton's made his opening remarks, my colleague Benoit Gurin will introduce the main findings and recommendations of the new report. Um, after that, I'll ask a few uh, of my questions to the panel um, and then we'll open up to audience questions. Um, if you're watching this event live, then please do start putting your questions in the Q&A panel on the right of your screen as soon as you like. Um, we'll try to get to most of them, but um, uh, we can't guarantee to get to, to all of them. But please do start putting them in there so we can see them um, as, as you as you hear the, the discussion that's going on. Um, if you see a question that uh, you like, which is similar to one that you would like to ask, then feel free to up like it. And then we can make sure that all the most popular uh, questions get asked. Um, and if you would like to, please do also add your name and where you're watching from uh, to the uh, to your question, because that can always be interesting for people. Um, we will be live tweeting the event uh, from IFG events uh, using the hashtag IFG Civil Service. So please feel free to, to join us in, in doing that. And finally, just to let you know that uh, within 24 hours, we aim to have the audio and video recordings of the event up on our website uh, so you can come back and watch it again at your leisure. Um, so I'm going to hand over now to Anton. Anton, would you like to say a few words? Thank you, Hannah, and good afternoon, everyone. I hope everyone's safe and well, uh, and thanks for joining us for what I hope will be uh, an insightful session this afternoon. As Hannah said, my name is Anton Whitefoot, uh, uh, and I look after our HCM capability for public sector Oracle. Um, at Oracle, we've had the pleasure of working with the Institute for Government for a number of years now on many different projects, uh, including this one, uh, and we've done so through involvement in other reports as well across finance, HR, collaboration, lots of different topics. Uh, and some of these can be found on uh, our Institute for Government's website. Uh, and today, this particular topic is very close to my heart, uh, namely managing talent. And I can see by the number of people online uh, that it's uh, important to many of you too. And um, it should come as no surprise that attracting and deploying people with the right skills in the right roles is a priority for us at Oracle. But also along with almost every single organisation we have the privilege of working with in any industry or sector, uh, and this is especially the case after the challenges of the last year or so. Um, we recognise this is particularly challenging in government because, as the report says, it isn't a single organisation, uh, far from it, but rather a collection of departments and public bodies with their own priorities. And as the report notes, good quality data is critical to making the most of staff, staff skills, although for many reasons that data isn't easy to obtain. Encouragingly, the reforms of civil service has been working on since 2013 are starting to make a difference. Now, I'm sure you want to hear about the report itself, so I'm going to hand over to Benoit to present the main findings. Thank you. Thank you very much, Anton. Uh, and thank you all for joining us, and many thanks especially to our panel. Great. So I hope you can all see the slides. Please uh, let me know if you, if you can't. Um, so let me start with a quote. Uh, which says, as you can see here, it talks about those want, how those who want to join the civil service should have numerical and quantitative skills. 
Now, this is something that might sound like a speech from Michael Gove, the minister for the cabinet's office, but it is in fact an extract from the Fulton Report, which was written more than 50 years ago. Now, the Fulton Report is a captivating read, especially if you work at the Institute for Government, that is, because it discusses many of the problems that successive governments have tried to deal with when it comes to effectively managing civil service skills. And the reason why governments have spent, have spent much of the last decades trying to do that is that having civil servants with the right skills um, to develop and implement priorities that make a difference to uh, the lives of the public is critical to the success of any government. And indeed, many uh, major projects and policies in recent years have been held back because the civil service didn't have quite the right skills. Uh, if you think about universal credit or the emergency services network, among others. But in the last few months, there's been renewed interest in civil service skills against the backdrop of EU exit and more recently COVID response. And we've seen ministers, advisors and senior officials openly discussing skills as part of wider plans for civil service reform. The paper that we published today is our modest contribution to that debate, recognizing that this is a very important moment uh, for skills reform, but also that 50 years on after the Fulton report, some of these problems still need solving. So let me quickly walk you through a selection of some of our findings. Uh, first, it's really important to acknowledge that the civil service has made really good progress in developing and deploying skills in recent years. As Hannah said, in 2013, it created functions to improve the way that it conducts certain conduct certain activities that rely on specialist skills from contract management to HR, finance, project delivery, and so on and so forth. And what that's meant in practice really is a greater uh, coherence to the definition of different job roles, different families, but also career paths for those who have these specialist skills in the civil service. It's also meant more tailored learning and development for those who have these skills for through the Government Finance Academy, among the many other academies that have been set up by the different functions. And finally, and importantly, it's really helped government respond to various scenarios in recent years, including um, the COVID-19 pandemic, when the functions played an important role in quickly deploying experts with that digital finance or commercial expertise. And of course, the commercial function helped uh, by ventilators for the NHS. Now, we did find that some of the perennial barriers to building skills in the civil service remain, and these really include accountability and funding, which are traditionally organized around government departments. So you can imagine that when the civil service set up functions that got to cut across departments, in many ways, it threw a bit of a spanner in the works. Um, John Manzoni, the former chief executive of the civil service, famously said when he was asked about clarifying the accountability of the functions in Parliament, that doing so would be horribly complicated, although that has started to change in recent years thanks to the reforms that the Cabinet Office have undertaken. The other major barrier is funding. So some functions are paid through Cabinet Office's core budgets. Others are funded by yearly contributions from government departments. Now, the latter have much less certainty over how much money they'll have next year, and that can hamper their planning quite a bit. And you can see some of that in the size of the central teams that support various functions or professions. So this chart from the report shows that the central commercial team in Cabinet Office employs around 280 people, and their job is to support around 5,000 commercial professionals in government. On the other end, at the very end of the scale, you've got the policy profession unit, which employs 15 people, but has to support around 24,000 officials who do policy across government, which is quite a stark contrast. Uh, we also found that access to learning and development in the civil service is uneven. There's a bit of a gap in development opportunities for those who are not uh, new entrants on specific programs like the Fast Stream or those who are not considered top talent. And a quick glance at some of the numbers indicates a little bit of this. So in 2021, the civil service Fast Stream will be hiring around 830 people. Um, it's hired in 2019-20 around 7,500 apprentices and leadership programs across government offer a few hundred places uh, a year. And that means that around 400,000 civil servants are at risk of being left behind. Now, of course, all of the civil servants have access to uh, training and, and their own development, but our interviewees suggested that there's a bit of a lack of incentives to learn and develop in the civil service, with training being seen as a nice to have or at worst, 
an imposition rather than an investment in the civil servant's professional future, in the words of a recent report by PACAC. And that really goes against the sort of majority uh, opinion in other sectors where learning is very much seen as part of the job. And in order to keep your license to practice, as it were, if you're a specialist in other firms, you have to be up to date with some of the latest developments and so on and so forth. Part of the reason for that, that our interviews highlighted, is that managers in the civil service are not really held to account uh, for developing those they manage as much as they are in other sectors. We also found that the civil service does have many skills available to it. So the criticism that it lacks people with a background in science and engineering, data or analysis isn't fair. The civil service does in fact employ many scientists, around 12,000 people identify as scientists and engineers, around 10,000 people identify as data and technology professionals, and the civil service also employs around 5,000 analysts. Now, what is fair to say is that the civil service is unable to make the most of these skills, partly due to poor quality data. Um, it finds it difficult to have data on how many experts it has in these different professions, but also how proficient these people are at uh, as using these different skills. Um, now, commercial and project delivery are making some headway in assessing the level of competency of their staff, but they're just two of the combined 43 civil service functions and professions. So that means that all in all, in 2020, the civil service didn't know what profession a quarter of its staff belonged to. And that's because uh, of a department, which shall remain the Department for Work and Pensions, did not report the data this year. But when, even when it did report that data last year, that percentage was still 10%, which in our opinion is still too high. So what can the civil service do to acquire and effectively manage the skills that it needs? Well, we recommend first that it takes a different approach to learning and development. That was one of the most commonly said things in our interviews. And of course, changing a culture is quite abstract and quite difficult to do in practice. So we focused on the role that managers play in doing that. So for example, we recommend that individual managers should provide evidence of developing their staff and of how much they grew their team's capability over time if they want to be considered high performers. The second thing to look at is greater accountability and stable funding for the functions and professions. So on the accountability front, you've got 14 functions, 29 professions, many of which overlap. So we say that there's scope to perhaps bring some of them closer together under a similar structure to join up the strategy setting, the professional development, uh, the standard setting and the delivery. On the funding front, the key is really to agree a few well understood funding models for the functions and the professions. The civil service has started to make some progress there and it's offered uh, more stable funding to policy and operational delivery this year, but it should consider doing that more widely um, in the future because this is really crucial if the civil service wants to give itself the means of successfully managing its skills and its workforce. Now, unsurprisingly, being the Institute for Government, we've got a slightly nerdy recommendation about uh, having better data on skills. Uh, we recognize that getting good quality data is very difficult because, as Anton says, uh, the civil service is made up of many different organizations. Keeping that data up to date is also very difficult. But it's very important to say this is not just data for its own sake. It is crucial to effectively managing the workforce and indeed something that other sectors uh, do quite well. So what we ask in our report is that the leadership of the civil service should set up a systematic data collection program, uh, which would be consistent across all government departments and include some data of how proficient people are at the various skills that they uh, use in their day to day work with, preferably some input from managers and colleagues in assessing this. And finally, we say that the civil service should draw on the expertise that is available in the wider public sector. If you look at this chart, it shows you that government spending uh, on consultancy uh, has gone up in the last few years. And that, in our mind, shows that the government tends to look outside of itself when it wants to, to buy in skills. Of course, bringing consultants absolutely has its place in securing skills and capability, but sometimes it's not the best way to spend public money. There's a really large pool of expertise outside the civil service and other parts of the public sector that, it's not, uh, that is not often used, partly because of the difficulties in bringing people in from other sectors, moving them across employers and organizations. And we do offer some suggestions for, for how to, to uh, bridge that particular gap. So we recommend that the civil service encourages more uh, exchange by setting up sort of formal routes for secondments, shadowing, etc., across the NHS, police forces, local government, and so on and so forth. And that should go really hand in hand with comparable data on skills. 
That's it for me. I'll hand over back to Hannah, who will pick up on some of these points with our panel. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, Benoit. Um, yeah, so as Benoit said, I'm, I'm going to kick off now with a few questions to the panellists. Uh, thank you to everyone who started to uh, put their own questions into the Q&A and we'll, we'll come on to those um, soon. Um, I wanted to kick off with you, Emily, as someone with real sort of depth and breadth of experience um, in the civil service. What, in your view, and I guess particularly in light of the sort of ex extreme experiences the civil service has been through in, in the past uh, few years, what are the key skills that civil servants most urgently need to develop? Thanks, Hannah, and uh, well done to Benoit and team for a really interesting report. I especially love the way you present data and, um, and uh, how you, you did those slides just now. So thank you, Benoit, for that. Um, so, yeah, I have a long background in the civil service. I've been in the civil service for 20 years, 20 and a half years, um, and I've had the benefit of a lot of training. So I've been on the High Potential Development Scheme. I've been on the Major Projects Leadership Academy. I was in the Far Stream and so on. So I've, I've sort of uh, sucked the juice out of what's been on offer. Um, and I do think that there are uh, two areas that your report doesn't pick up, which I think um, where more is needed. And there's lots in the report that I totally agree with. So I agree that there should be more funding for the professions. Um, I agree there should be a much bigger culture of, of professional development and emphasis on managers um, and a number of other things I think you're spot on with. But the, the two areas I, I think are missing. So first of all, I think um, you and the civil service, the top of the civil service, suffer from a bias of, the, of um, thinking about the system as a machine rather than the system as a load of people that relate to citizens. Um, and I think there are lots and lots of services that we run that we can automate well and which need digital and pro project management skills in order to deliver. We've seen that beautifully with the use of uh, universal credit for giving out benefits in the COVID-19 space or some of the furlough work last year, which built on amazing digital work from DWP and HMRC. But we also have lots and lots of civil servants who, who do relating services. If I think about a probation officer or a prison officer who is actually having to attend and relate to someone who's got complex needs, those are also really important skills. And I think we, we need to, um, as, as we automate more and invest our thinking in that side of things, we also need to be privileging and putting our energy and thought to support those who are holding those very complex relationships on behalf of the state with people who have complex needs. So for me, something about relationships is needed. The second thing comes from my experience um, with DEFRA when I was in charge of EU exit domestic consequences planning for a couple of years. And, and we were there um, right as the referendum happened in 2016. And we, we lacked two major skill sets in the department. One was project management and the second actually was strategy skills. Um, project management we managed to build up. We got lots of um, uh, contractors in at the start. Uh, there was a lot of training done of people inside DEFRA. I think it's a different place now. The strategy skills, you don't need as many of them, but people with these skills. But the, the, if you're able to do really clear outcomes um, and uh, organising of work in a very rigorous strategic way, it makes a massive difference to, um, to departments and how successful they are. So for me, uh, and working with the strategy houses, the consultants that we ended up bringing in, I learned a lot about how much they privilege their training and we just don't do it as well in the civil service. So for me, I think we need to build that capability, really, really strong strategy skills. Thanks, Emily. And just to follow up, um, because obviously now you're, you're the, the Food Standards Agency, do you feel that the skills that are needed in, in non-ministerial departments, ALBs and so on, are, are different to those in, in Whitehall centrally or, um, or pretty much the same? Well, inevitably there's some differences. So I don't think there's many cabinet office civil servants who need to learn how to inspect an abattoir and yes. understand uh, the rules about meat hygiene regulations. For instance, I have a lot of vets that, that um, work for the Food Standards Agency. We also have a lot of environmental health officers and ex-trading standards officers. Uh, ex-peace officers who do lots of investigations into food fraud. So some of these very technical skills are specific to us as a non-ministerial department. Um, I, and I think that's where we need to be a bit careful about the centralising approach on skills. Again, I think IFG's proposals on data are probably very sensible and on taking a more holistic approach. But each department will have very specific needs. Each arm's length body will have very specific needs. 
you think of natural England, for instance, and the way they go out and talk to farmers about what the conservation plan should be for particular land area. That is a very specific skill set. But there are generic things in there, how you listen well, um, how you how you uh, deal with moral and ethical questions that come up about regulatory capture and so on. Those are generic. So let's do the generic things once and then let's give departments freedom and money to do the specific things well. Thanks, Emily. Rupert, can I come to you now? And obviously you have very uh, broad experience outside the civil service uh, as well as within. Um, Emily talked a lot there about, uh, you know, interacting with 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 some people outside government as well as inside and and, and learning from from those sectors. Um, where do you think this is a, a sort of a, a really overarching question for you, but where do you think the civil service is doing better than other sectors when it comes to managing staff skills and 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 where do you think it's it's perhaps falling behind? Well, thanks. Uh, thanks, Hannah. And uh, again, just echo what Emily said and uh, I agree with many fair points and also what a, what a great report uh, Ben Wine team have produced uh, as, as always. Uh, so the way I tend to look at this is having spent 10 years in professional services and 10 years in quite a regulated corporate sector of financial services, I'm just really struck as I think the report recognises that central government, arguably the wider public sector, um, is a strange hybrid. It sits between these two modes and um, one of the great strengths of um, of the public sector is that although it is a sector, it can organise itself um, in many ways like a single organisation. And if you think about any other sector, like financial services or uh, the sector that um, uh, you know, tech or technology or, or, or other areas, those sectors are made up of competitors, whereas the public service is made up of uh, people whose purpose is to collaborate as much as possible. That's a fantastic um, and powerful uh, situation to be in. So we're removing frictions. There isn't a, a sort of a natural zero-sum game underpinning the whole uh, the whole enterprise of skill building, which there might be um, in um, in some other sectors, and where you have to inject uh, that from uh, from another place. So in that context, I think that what what I've observed is that. Um, civil servants and public servants generally are are actually very quick studies when they are shown what they when we are shown what we need to learn um, and I think that's been shown actually through EU transition and through Covid particularly uh, I'd also say it's uh, interesting at a system level when you look at things like Carillion you know the responses can be done actually much more rapidly than in um, than perhaps in a in, in a different sort of private sector context and uh, it's much easier to convene which means that you can come up with um, definitions, frameworks, standards, curricula, and uh, and share those um, much more effectively. And what I think is really great to see is the way if you look at um, government functions, whether it's uh, finance or my own HR, but also commercial particularly, uh, or operational delivery as a profession or policy profession, the creation of standards which people can um, almost treat as open source standards, and I'd recommend that anybody uh, should um, who, who wants to do activity in that area, whether they're in the UK or in the public or private sector, could can draw on those frameworks as sort of a, a public good. But they set out really clearly um, the, uh, the sort of objective sense of what of, of what skills are needed in a particular in a particular role. So if you combine the willingness to learn plus the um, and to teach uh, and to share. Uh, with the ability to convene and come up with those common frameworks, that's um, that's really uh, that's really powerful. And, and interestingly, then you come to the next opportunity that we've got, which touches, I think, a bit on what Emily said, which is that um, I completely agree about the skills that we need to be looking at. First of all, these skills all need to be applied in a context, and the context is going to be very different, whether it's speaking to farmers or being a job, uh, being a work coach in a in a job centre. But there are some common features. Um, I think what's really exciting for us and where we can be a, a sector that is hopefully showing the way for other sectors in the global economy is the pervasive skills that we need in all our roles are um, human contact and customer service at the at, at the sort of the uh, the core level, whether you're a prison officer or in a job centre or in a policy role in uh, in, in Whitehall, where you're looking at uh, delivering outcomes. Um, that's not automatable. 
Um, it can be augmented massively by automation, as we've seen with um, work coaches. But um, it uh, ultimately you will not lose those jobs. I don't. I don't believe. And then also, uh, Emily rightly mentioned uh, strategy. Strategy is not the same as policy. Some people confuse the two. Um, strategy is a discipline in its own right, which is pervasive and leadership in any organization and context needs to be able to do it well. So um, I think what we're now getting to a point is we're sort of we can we can start to operationalize the um, the functionally specific professional skills and now look through our government curriculum unit and the work we're doing there at some of these cross cutting pervasive skills. And uh, uh, it's, it's a really exciting time, actually, with with ministers. You know, started with Michael Gove's digitally speech and now what we're looking at with reform, looking at um, ways to really build uh, the capability in um, uh, in the civil service, which I think will, will will ripple out and help others as well. Thank you very much, Rupert. Um, Max, Rupert's given us a good sort of sense there of, of, of priorities and, and, you know, where where he feels um, things are things are at in the civil service. What does the NEO think are the main successes the civil service has achieved in developing skills in the recent years? And, and where are the perhaps the, the missed opportunities? Thanks, Hannah. And, and just to, to repeat, I think a, a great report from Benoit and the team um, that sets out, I think, a lot of those successes and opportunities and, and things that need to be done. I, I guess from, from our perspective, and, and we often consider skills as part of our work, I think over half of all of our reports will talk about skills in major programs, etc. Um, a lot of the successes I think Rupert described here. So first, there's a great success in establishing functions. Um, I, I think that that by itself uh, has, has helped a lot of people to think about what are the skills that people need? How do we build them up and to prioritize certain areas that have been challenging for a long time but have improved significantly. So things like government commercial function, government finance function, you know, we are seeing a lot more professionalism around some of those those very specialist areas. Um, there's a better reporting and understanding of what's happening in functions. I think that's been that's been a long journey, but I think we're starting to see much more clarity about how functions work, um, the people standards, career frameworks and training programs that exist, I think now are well understood. People know that they can access them. Uh, and so on. So I think there's a, a lot of successes to be celebrated there. And, and actually, if we look back over the last year or actually over the last three or four years, we've seen a lot of very challenging circumstances being dealt with relatively effectively. So uh, Carillion, uh, collapse of Carillion, for example, on commercial side, but also just the operational challenges that people have faced over the last year, getting in job center staff, getting in HMRC staff, just, just all of those things have been incredibly difficult and I think have been helped a lot by understanding what's required, having professional people in the center who are able to help coordinate that process with departments at the same time. Um, on the opportunity side, I think I'd echo some, some of what Rupert was talking about where um, we government has a huge opportunity to lead in a lot of these areas. There are not many people who do as many major programs as government. Um, and we, the standards, the, the processes that have been introduced are um, things that can be, can establish the kind of benchmark globally, really, for, for some of these things. Um, not just in, in terms of the, the technicalities, but also on standards of things like accessibility and inclusion in services. So going to Emily's point here, government, government has that ability to be more inclusive than, than the private sector might be. So thinking of this as something where government leads rather than just importing things from the private sector, I think is quite an important mindset shift. Um, and I think it's, you know, it certainly people are trying to do that, but I, I think that that's the sort of big step to go forward with. Um, and then I think the paper that Benoit uh, has discussed identifies a lot of the the, the things that need to be in place to make that work. And I think incentives for individuals and managers to make that happen, I think is very important. Um, and data, which is something we've written about quite a lot, data on workforce. It sounds a little bit bureaucratic and, and there's a risk that we, we try and put everybody into boxes and just do this big form filling exercise. But if you want people to be able to work both through departmental lenses and through functional lenses, you need to have a common language for discussing what the priorities are and how to get people um, into the right places if you need to do that, but also actually to factor in some of those, those cross-cutting skills in the curriculum or, or on the front line in terms of how you handle people. I think data, the process of actually trying to gather that data should be a 
an opportunity to make transparent some of those things that we value but don't always talk about. Thanks, Max. I'm going to start um, taking some of the questions uh, from from the Q and A now because we've got lots, and I want to make sure we get through as many as possible. And and Max, I'm going to stick with you um, to to put this this first one to you, which is from uh, David Treadwell, and and he asks. Do we see a problem with a loss of civil service expertise and experience from the rising trend of outsourcing and use of consultants? So we've talked about, you know, the value and the and the and the use of of, of consultants and, and how that can help. But is there any any problem in the opposite direction? I think it's quite a complicated picture. So um, if, if you look at the, the positive side, the, the the very quick reduction in consultancy expenditure sort of 10 years ago, uh, and then for, for several years after that, um, probably had its costs, but also did introduce opportunities to to reduce dependency on on contractors, um, and and built up the capability within a lot of departments. So if you think about HMRC's Aspire program, from a technology point of view, insourcing a lot of that capability, I think has helped substantially in being able to respond to some of the challenge both around the border. Which were so anything any developments post 2016, but also last year introducing some employment the employment support programs. I, I think so. The the uh, it, it's not a simple story of consultancy reliance has increased. Actually, it did decrease for a time, and actually that had some benefits. Um, then in post 2016, inevitably, uh, as Emily's described, and will know much better than I do that there just were so many more demands on the civil service very, very quickly in areas that were less well understood because we, we had a lot less experience of it. Um, and it's inevitable that in those those short term spikes, you're going to have to introduce capability quickly. And if one of the mechanisms for doing that is consultancy spend, and that's perfectly appropriate, the question is then make sure that doesn't become an embedded reliance. We don't we don't just have people sitting in there for years and years and years with no skills transfer. Um, so. I think it's a it's a much more complicated picture. There's lots of different trends coming through at different times. Thanks, Max. Um, Rupa, I think you wanted to come in. I wonder whether you might also answer one of the other questions which relates to this, which has come through, which um, is, is an anonymous question, um, saying you know, many open roles within the civil service do not attract enough external interest and what action can be taken to challenge to change that fact? Uh, great, well, great, great questions. And David's uh, question is uh, fantastic. Uh, segue into that and agree with uh, what Max has said. So, so I think the um, if we take a step back, we're, we're looking at making sure that at any point in time, all parts of the system have the capability that they need to deliver their required outcomes. And sometimes, as we've seen in the past couple of years, there is a, uh, a a sort of a crunch point of capacity. There just aren't enough people to do the work. Um, and uh, of course, you have to bring people in to do that. The question is, what's the most efficient way to do that? You then got a second issue, which is absolutely right, as Max says, which is what happens when um, you uh, you find that you need that, uh, call it sovereign capability inside government, and it's not um, and it's not there because you didn't build the capability behind it internally, and you became very dependent on, for example, uh, project management brought in from outside through consultancies or whatever. So that's something we're very aware of. We're, and we're trying to uh, approach that in, um, in a number of ways. First of all, we need to get better at defining what capability is required. And um, through the work that I know that Emma and others have done you know, across the system through EU exit and through COVID, we've got a lot granular about that and about our workforce planning. Then we need to work out, well, actually, this is an area where we had a gap and we need to fill it. What's the best way to fill it? Uh, the now. There are several ways. Uh, one is by uh, one is by hiring, obviously. Uh, one is through contingent labour. Um, another is going to a consultancy organisation to help us with that. But there are actually more ways that we could use. So we're actually, I think, at a very exciting point of saying, um, don't get caught in some of the sort of traditional tram lines. Let's look at other ways of doing it. So one of them is, um, can we uh, make it easier to bring in people from outside? Just are we actually going out? externally and recruiting in the right way, not necessarily for, uh, for, for, for long permanent recruitment, but for sort of shorter fixed time, term roles. Um, are we making the best use of consultancy? And our new consultancy hub, um, quick plug to say the playbook for this is going to be published uh, imminently uh, about how to construct consultancy engagements uh, in the most effective way um, to make use of actually the very great skills that might exist in other parts of the, pub of the civil service and the public service, which won't be in immediately to people in a sense uh, just you know 
assembling the right type of project. Um, also, if you may have seen the integrated review, we're looking at uh, the establishment of a civilian reserve, uh, which means can we go back and get um, people who've left the civil service and pull them back in in the right way? Can we go and get uh, people from uh, from industry? We did that during COVID, uh, for example, taking furloughed workers in to uh, support, uh, support resources and also looking at secondments um, as well. So those are all ways of bringing capability in. But when we bring it in, how do we also um, capture it capture this, the learning and make sure it's then spread out across the system so it can be really uh, deployed uh, deployed well. So um, I, re I really empathise with what uh, David is saying is the risk and, and that's what we're trying to do to manage it. On the question of open roles, um, I think one of the biggest risks that uh, any organisation has is being inward and not taking in external expertise. And we want to be making sure that we're always bringing in the best people um, we also want to make sure that we're developing our internal talent so that they will always stand up and be the as, as far as possible the best in competitions. That would be a great a great outcome. But um, really, uh, really making sure that our um, our recruitment processes are bringing people in who are very um, that we're not. I say what are, what are the risks? Some line managers hiring managers need to be able to 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 define what they really need the essential criteria for roles so that they are open and accessible to the widest possible set of people whatever their background and wherever they are in the country that's that's really the essence of what we need to do on um, on external recruitment so again um to that question i um i absolutely uh, rec recognize it and that's something that we need to uh, to work on thanks Rupert. um Emily, I'm going to th throw the next question um, to you, and it's from uh, John McMaster, who asks, who well says the key skill which the civil service lacks is the management ability to operate in a non-silo manner and work across departmental boundaries. What resources being targeted in this area? And I think you know, from your from your point of view, where you know where you're sitting within the civil service, how is that how is that challenge, which I think everybody recognises, uh, being addressed, and what role can the functions um, and professions play in that? Thanks, Hannah. Um, and uh, some of you may know that I wrote a uh, report for the Institute for Government uh, 10 years ago now on collaborative working. So it is a bit of a passion of mine that we try and work across boundaries in the civil service. And I, and I, I wrote that report because I'd had the experience of working on asylum in the Home Office where I was busy, uh, my team was busy granting asylum to families who then rocked up as homeless families on local authorities' doorsteps. And we just had to coordinate better and we haven't. Um, and it was uh, the, the incentives in the system were very different on different parts of the um, different parts of the civil service. Um, so is it better 10, 15 years later? I, I still think we've got a long way to go. And um, sadly, the uh, the levers that need to be used to uh, force more collaborative working sit in the centre. Um, so the Treasury uh, can make us do it through funding streams. And the cabinet office can make us do it through um, cabinet committees and uh, task forces and so on. Um, and what, what I, t I mean, it's very interesting sitting in a non-ministerial department. It's quite liberating not having a secretary of state that you have to work to. It's got its downsides too because we have less influence. But we, what we don't uh, get confined to is just the interests of, of one person. We have to think about things in the round from the point of view of the consumer. And I look back at my colleagues now in some government departments and hear them saying, oh, well, you know, we can't work on that because the Secretary of State's not very interested in it at the moment. Well, we would, wouldn't say that in the FSA. We wouldn't say, well, just because someone's not interested, we wouldn't work on it. It, it would There would be a, a sort of formal process of prioritisation that we'd go through. Um, and I'm rambling slightly, but the point I want to get to is that, for example, on food, which is a highly cross-cutting issue, where if, say you want to tackle the two big challenges facing the food system at the moment, one around carbon and one around healthy diet, which are massive challenges for the UK. In order to get on top of those things for the food system from farm to fork, you have got so many government departments and devolved administrations that you need to get working together to collaborate. At the moment, for instance, on um, the question of nutrition and product formulation, Public Health England now, DHSE, do a bit. Um, Wales have got, I think, one or two people working on it. The FSA does it in Northern Ireland, Food Standards Scotland does it in Scotland. Um, and we're all trying to talk to the same businesses about 
what they're doing with their product formulation and frankly not doing it in a very joined up fashion. And the food industry rightly will turn around to government and say, hold on a minute, you said that this six months and then in six months time you want us to change, do something else and you want us to change the food label to add in X and then definitely want us to change the food label as well. It's just badly coordinated and as a consequence we're missing out on making a difference. So we have to get better at it and we have to put our departmental interests to one side for the greater good and how we do that at the moment we need to be whipped into doing it by the centre sadly because we're not good enough at doing it on our own. That's really interesting Emily thank you. Um, I don't know uh, Rupert or, or Max if you want to come in or I can uh, no I can uh, throw a new question to you. Um, Rupert did you want to come in? Come in one, yeah sorry yeah. so one, one, one point just to, to, to build what Emily said. I, it's a really interesting opportunity for us, particularly with um, the way in which te technology allows us to collaborate and how we think about teams to, de to deal with m departments that require outcomes which are, uh, well, outcomes rather, which require multi-departmental responses. To think about uh, not just capability in terms of what whole parts of the system like a department have or individuals have, but also how teams operate. I really think that's the if I think about what I really hope we can do over the next decade, it's getting much better at assembling teams to deal with outcomes. Now that does require, as I think the question implied, actually quite quite sophisticated leadership skills and uh, and program definition skills. But uh, I think that's that's the opportunity we've got. Thanks, Rupert. I'm just going to pick up on the, uh, something you were saying there about the the sort of um, the opportunity and the, the current situation we find ourselves in with a question from uh, Richard Goff, who asks, um, as we all move to some form or other of hybrid working, what are the civil services plans? And I think this is uh, one for you, Rupert, I think. Um, what are the civil services plans for reskilling managers and leaders to manage and engage remotely? And you talked about the sort of collaboration side of that, but obviously there's lots of different sides to, to the civil service working effectively. Yeah, so so I think this is something that we are actively uh, actively working on. Uh, there is uh, a piece of work currently being coordinated by uh, Stephen Boyd, who's the chief executive of the Government Property Agency, and uh, Debbie Alder, who is um, Capability DG for DWP, both of whom have got lots of experience in this, but it's a, it's a multi uh, it's a multi-departmental um, uh, enterprise to to look at all the aspects of this from health and safety to managerial skills to the policies um, it links into a broader topic of interoperability uh, something I think we've realized we really need to um, get to grips with the result of the uh, sort of pandemic response um, how do we allow different parts of the system to work much more effectively how do we access uh, the, um, the the different uh, skills of the the workforce around uh, not just the UK but actually uh, around the globe it, uh, there are there are parts of government which have been really good at doing this for many years including um, the FCDO um, and uh, and actually places like DIT as well so how do we how do we how do we exploit that so I think um, and and organizations across the world are wrestling with the same uh, with the same thing I think the key point in the question that Richard's asked is um, it is it does require a skill it, it is a skill um, it does require uh, different ways of working if I take a very uh, a very practical example when we're all on a, a system like this and everybody is virtual it's a lot easier um, and also when everyone is together physically there are real issues, including issues of inclusion, of effective collaboration, when you're dealing with hybrid meetings where some people are in the room and some people are not. And we just need to find out ways of effectively managing uh, managing around that. So that's a piece of work underway. Hope we get the chance to come back and uh, speak at uh, IFG and tell you what you're, we're doing Hannah, on that. Well, I think we definitely uh, welcome that, Rupert. So I'll, I'll, I'll note that down as an offer. Um, Another question now from uh, Martin McIver, who is is asking about the impact of pay on skills. So he says, um, and I think uh, this this might be a question I might um, start with you, Max, to see if you have a sort of an NAO view on, on how this is working. Obviously, Rupert, I'll bring you in afterwards. Um, Martin asks, uh, the ban on pay progression over the past decade has made it harder to incentivize and reward specialization and deep expertise with a particularly negative impact on scientists and engineers. 
and Emily may have a view on, on how that looks from the FSA, can this damage be reversed? And, and this is um, pay in the civil service is worth um, saying is, is something that the RFG is also looking at at the moment. But can we start with you, Max? Sure, I, I, this is a really, really tricky one. So when we looked at civil service uh, skills last year, we noticed that there were very high levels of variation also within certain grades between different departments, jobs that would otherwise be sort of deemed equivalent. So there's there's that question as well, which which creates issues. Um, pay progression is a challenge because it then puts a lot of emphasis on role change. So you see more churn because people want to develop and actually might have been happy doing their role had there been some ability to recognize it and develop within role, but actually see the only way to do anything to progress careers is to move around often to less good fit uh, in, in terms of where they're going. It also creates this challenge of um, sometimes quoted as an internal market problem where it's actually just a lot of internal competition for the same people, which is which is inefficient for a number of reasons. So there's a, there's a big challenge there. We also published a report recently on pensions, public sector pensions, and whether quite enough thought had been in looking at that aspect of both from a flexibility point of view, so bringing people in who don't necessarily uh, want to take on a long-term commitment or uh, but then lose I suppose the appeal of being able to join uh, a, a very attractive uh, aspect of, of terms of conditions so there are a lot of things like that that I, I think need a lot of uh, work and thinking about um, and I don't have any sort of easy answers but maybe Rupert can. <laughs> Rupert give us the answers. Well I, I think the, uh, the the clearest position on this uh, and sort of the way the future is in uh, the government's evidence to the senior salary review body, and we've been working on this for a number of years. Uh, I believe, uh, and it's sort of set out there in the context of the SCS, that capability-based pay is the um, is a solution to this. It, it deals with a number of issues. Um, the fact that it that you build your capability by staying in a job and building the experience that shows that you can deliver outcomes, because capabilities be that's defined, I think, is the ability to deliver an outcome uh, in, in, in a job or associated with a capability. Um, Recognising that uh, certainly for senior roles, but more generally, there are there's your professional technical capability um, and also your uh, leadership and management capability. But not every role, picking up another point that's been made, not every role, uh, for example, scientists, engineers can tend to be more individual contributors. So we need to recognize that and make sure that those people are being properly rewarded. So I think that's, you know, pay progression used to be a, a, a concept uh, of sort of just time served and you, and you get pay as you uh, go through time served. We're talking here about accessible capability, which is also linked to making sure that you maintain your skills and maintain your capability. So um, I would say one thing we do need to introduce in the culture of learning that Benoit and the report describe and the role of managers is making sure that people are keeping up with their um, uh, with with their with their skills, and that's actually an important part of, of recognizing um, what you need to do to uh, to receive capability-based pay. Now, that that's a piece of work that's underway. The position is very clear in that um, in that evidence. Um, it's going to take time to uh, introduce it. Um, it would not have been possible to do it without. The work that's been done on functions um, and the career frameworks, which uh, which the functions allowing us to put in place. But I'm, I think that's the the long term solution to that, and also to the to the churn issue that uh, Max has mentioned. Thanks, Rupert. Um, Emily, do you want to give us a, an FSA perspective on, on this one? You've got a lot of um, a lot of specialists. Yeah, um, this is so my perspective is actually slightly broader than just the FSA. So, so first of all, I, I completely agree with Rupert. There should be reward for improving capability. But if people stay in the same jobs forever, that can become a drag on innovation in the civil service. Um, and that is a problem where you have people who are overly expert. You can be expert in your knowledge, but not necessarily um, energised in your work. So let's not confuse the two. So I do think a little bit of churn is, is good and I think it's a, a benefit to people to move roles and, and learn elsewhere. Um, there, there have been times when there's been competition going between departments for the same role. So when I was in DEFRA we paid our economists slightly less than I think um, the business department did and so we were losing economists to Bayes which was just bonkers because we were doing equally as interesting work and we had to rectify that. It took quite a while to sort it out and so for things that are specialist professions, let's not have competition between the departments. Let's try and have some kind of parity. I know there's issues around wanting to keep to the departmental 
model of employment for various reasons but I think that for some of the professions we should do that the other thing I'd say though is that um so we've got some amazing data analysts in FSA shh, don't tell anyone um because and we're doing really clever things with machine learning and food hygiene rating systems and uh, import control stuff and I said to uh, to their manager recently well how do we make sure we don't lose any of these amazing people and um because they are paid well below frankly what they could earn in the private sector and what she said was well if we can get them some more data they'll be really happy <laughs> so let's not forget that the roles that we do are super interesting and if we create that work in a, in a way that is fascinating to those very expert people they don't get to work on this stuff in other places and it makes a difference and we get to serve the public that is such a big selling point i think that's a really really important point to bear, bear in mind thanks emily um Rupert, I'm going to ask you now a question from uh, Jonathan Fox, which actually picks up on something we, we talked about in, in the report, which and, and he asked that the time for development is not factored into the civil service job. Um, how can this be encouraged? Uh, it's a very good point. Uh, I think it speaks very much to Benoit's points in the report about culture of learning and role of managers. It is a manager's responsibility to make sure that the capability is maintained and grown and that will require um, people being given time to do that time not only to do formal training but also to apply it be coached evaluate what they've been uh, what they've been doing so this is a really important part of the um, of, of the culture um, i'm not sure we've we, we've been terribly effective in helping people record um the training that they've done i mean this, this speaks to the point which I haven't mentioned, but I completely agree with in the report that we need to be much better at capturing this stuff uh, about what people uh, what people have done and what their what their training and learning needs are. Um, and so, uh, you know, what what it, what is the what is the right uh, you know what is the right amount of time to give to somebody to do that? We, that that's going to be depend on their job, their actual skill level, uh, but it needs to be carefully uh, carefully considered and carefully planned. And when we're moving through periods like this, which are periods of transition. We've talked about, you know, training people uh, to uh, to make use of collaborative technology and remote working. Well, that's going to take, you know, there's, there's a chunk of time uh, which line managers are going to need to to do that, practice it, evaluate it, and, um, uh, and make sure we go through that, uh, go through that adjustment. So that's a, that's a very important part of the culture of learning that we need to build, completely agree. Max, is this something that the NAO has looked at? Are there other places where this is done better uh, within the civil service that we, that the, the rest of the civil service could look to? Uh, I, I was actually going to reflect a little bit on on um, our own experience because we have a lot of a lot of people coming through, and we train uh, a lot of trainees uh, from from entry through to trained accountants uh, and and further. And, and one of the things that we have to actively think about and actually push against is the tendency to get the, the best people into the best spot all the time. You actually always have to factor in the development requirements that people have. Now, obviously, we're project based to a large extent, audit based, and therefore it's, there's quite a high turnover in in both demand and supply in terms of who can do what. So that's it's relatively straightforward to, to make changes. But we we have to challenge ourselves a lot on that um, because finding the right opportunities is as much uh, the, the the way to develop a lot of skills as it is about formal training and actually we're moving a little bit away from formal training we still do a lot obviously from a uh, accounting point of view but we're trying to encourage people to think about their careers um, more holistically so that you're doing work that's relevant to developing certain skills doing maybe bite-sized training or online training there's so many opportunities now to do that in conjunction with the thing that you're trying to develop um, i think this points all points back to the the report that benoit and team have done which is you really need to make sure that managers incentives align on this. Otherwise, you've got, you know, it's just a cost for people saying I'll, I'll lose somebody from my team to a different project or to a to, or to, to, to a formal training course. I, I've got to make sure that those incentives are there, both on the kind of uh, more formal negative side, I guess, saying you've got to make sure that you, your teams are developing and monitoring that, but also on the positive side and saying celebrating managers who do develop their teams um, and not making it simply a, a kind of uh, a, a negative thing losing a really great person from a team. Emily, did you want to come on that? Yes. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a really important question about how you make time. So I, I um I've I've worked in uh, over the last few years in some very stressed out 
spaces. So DEFRA and Brexit, um, you know, big hairy deadline where uh, it just felt like there was never, ever, ever enough time to get the things done that you wanted to get done. And the difficult thing for those teams where you had people wanting to do training was that they felt they were leaving their colleagues in the lurch and they didn't want to leave everyone else holding the baby whilst they were off doing some learning. So it was it was partly whether they were given permission to give to, to make time, but partly whether they could give themselves permission to do it. So I guess a couple of things I think would make a big difference. One is that I think we have the, the, the emphasis on efficiency and kind of thin teams means that there isn't enough capacity in the teams. So you do need to have a little bit of resilience because, you know, people go off sick because the people take annual leave because people do training. Um, so you do the expectation should be there. Should, there should be slightly more than just the minimum in the team. The second thing is that if you look at the professions which have CPD as a requirement, there's quite a bureaucracy to it. But I think that helps. So, you know, environmental health officers have to do their how many it is days per year. They have to prove it. They get CPD points for it. Now, why don't we have that for the policy profession? We should do that for the commercial profession. In 2010, 11, 12, I can't remember when it was, there was a point where we had to have five days of training a year. It sort of drifted off. But there was never a point. We, we sort of did it because we felt good, not because it proved that we could stay in the profession that we were in. And I think a little bit of that uh, rigour and discipline might help us. Thanks, Emily. I've just lost the question I was going to ask, so let me just find it. Um... Oh, yes. And this is one um, I think probably for you, Rupert, although I, I'm, I, it's not clear to me whether it's it's talking about the centre, um, professions at the centre or, or within departments. So I guess we could take it either way. It's an anonymous question. Do professions feel empowered enough to be able to influence key decisions? The answer could provide a clue to how government can attract the right skills and people. So I think, yeah, we could answer that either way. But Rupert, I'll let you uh, take it first. Yeah. So, so I think it's a it, it's sort of a perennial question in any organisation, which is uh, where where does the expertise get injected into the decision making process? And uh, the very fact that we've we've got functions and professions shows, I think, that the system as a whole recognises that that's an important uh, an important thing. There's a question about you know is that at the outset? Do you need to be in the room when the decision is first being conceived and discussed? It depends on what the decision is, I'd suggest. But certainly, you know, you know, when when do you bring the lawyers in? When do you bring the technologists in? You know, those are really important, really important questions. And um, and when they come in, are they are they in a position to uh, to be influential and to advocate? Now, I've got a view about professions, which is that all professions at their core are about protecting amateurs from the counterintuitive. <laughs> so. Uh, the sooner you, you, know, you, you, you need those people there, particularly uh, because of the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is that people who are least competent are often most confident. So uh, I think when you take those factors in, you know, professions just need to be at the table at the right um, at the right time. And I think it's very important to have um, leaders and professionals at all levels who feel they can be assertive in their own domain. And say, actually, no, that's I've got a better way of doing it. That's probably what you want to hear from a professional. I, I love the outcome. I think I can show you how to do it more easily, more safely, and less expensively. Um, but that's uh, and maybe that comes down to another back to Emily's point about the the importance of sort of human relations skills uh, that they're important internally as well as dealing with citizens, that, so that you can actually be um, be influential. Great. Thanks, Rupert. Um, I think we've only got a couple of minutes left, so I'll let um, Emily and, and Max come in on that one um, with any final thoughts as well. Max, do you want to uh, to, to come in next? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, to, to, to really um, get behind Rupert's point here, it's a really good question, but I think it also reveals how we all tend to think about this, which is there are a group of people who make decisions and then there are a group of experts who try and get into that conversation. And actually, I think what we need to get to is a point where professionalism is something that everybody really values. And we're seeing people who've developed those skills in really senior positions making those decisions. It shouldn't be that they're trying to get in for, into a closed policy discussion of, of, uh, of, of generalists uh, that, that don't want to that sort of treat it as a service. You know, this is something that should be intrinsic in everything people do. Thank you, Max. Emily, final words. So, um, I think 
the those who hold a lot of power, so ministers, uh, parts of the cabinet office, um, very senior civil servants, often operate in what I call a top level dumb way. They don't understand uh, in enough detail the issues that they're responsible for. So it's incredibly important that those who operate the systems are in the room and explaining them and interpreting because counterintuitive, uh, co apparently common sense assumptions get made to massive detrimental effects. So I do think that's a big deal. It's, it's much easier for your lawyer or for your um, finance person to demand that they be in the room because we get caught out by accounting officer and legal issues and that feels very visceral as a civil servant. What's harder is for your project manager um, or your um, uh, so some of the other professions that we have because time, you know, the, the, some of the big mistakes are when people commit to something in six months when actually it's going to take 18 months. And your project manager is most likely to be able to go, actually, based on my professional experience, totally unlikely that we can deliver that in that amount of time. Um, and, and that is often the place where politicians are saying, oh, come on, we want to go faster. This is ridiculous. You're not being ambitious enough and so on. So to have someone who is confident in the room, who's experienced, who can make that point, I think is really, really important. Brilliant. Well, I'm afraid we're going to have to draw the event to a close there. I think we could go on for at least another hour, given the number of excellent questions we've had. But um, Massive thanks um, to Rupert, Emily and Max for what's been a really fascinating discussion, I think. Our thanks again to Oracle for sponsoring this event. And we're looking forward to the next event in the series, uh, which they're sponsoring. That's on the 30th of April, when we've got the um, well three newly appointed leaders of data, digital and technology who will be talking about the next phase of digital, digital delivery and transformation in government. Um, and they'll be talking to my colleague, uh, Alex Thomas. But thanks again uh, to all of you for joining us today and have a great afternoon.